Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 48 of So Important, the Interview Podcast. Today, I am speaking with Amy Edelstein, the founder and executive director of the Inner Strength Foundation, a nonprofit organization that supports youth development in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Amy is a Cornell University scholar, an accomplished author, educator, and podcast host, and a powerful communicator of ideas that, in her words, can help us transform ourselves and the culture we live in. Amy is an award-winning author and deep thinker about how all of us can spiritually grow and make the world a better place. And Amy puts her words into action, having worked with thousands of inner-city youth to help them, as she puts it, grow beyond their own expectations. My guess is that Amy can describe her work much better than I ever could. And what I'm really looking forward to discussing is her brand new book, Adventure in Zanskar, One Woman's Solitary Journey to Reach Physical and Metaphysical Heights. This is a story of, again to quote Amy, a solitary trek I undertook in the highest mountains of the world, the westernmost corner of the Tibetan Plateau, an area called Zanskar, India. And all of this at the ripe old age of 21. But there's more to the story. I knew Amy way back in the Pittsburgh days, in the 1970s. She was always the uber-cool sister of a friend. Everybody liked Amy. But I I certainly never knew that Amy was contemplating such weighty, life-impacting issues even back then. So we have some catching up to do. And Amy, I am so very happy to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to see you after all these years. And we definitely have a lot of catching up to do. So it's a nice, nice to be able to do this in this forum. Yes, absolutely. And uh, before we talk about all the incredible things that you have accomplished, I'd like to talk a little bit about you. What led you down a spiritual pathway and where has it led you so far? So as you mentioned, I was in high school in Pittsburgh in the middle of the 70s, which was a time similar to now. We were disillusioned with government. It was post-Watergate. The 60s hadn't panned out to be what they promised. There was still the tail end of seeking, but not sure what we were seeking for. And you and I spent a lot of time listening to a lot of progressive rock, which had that sense of journey, the mythic journey, the imaginative journey, taking you into realms of spirit and mind. When I was in high school, I started meditating. I got a couple of books that showed me how to do it. There was no internet. There weren't a million meditation teachers. And I I started practicing myself. And at that point, I really felt like I needed to find out how to make sense of life. How do you make sense of a world that does, isn't really working for a lot of people? How do you cultivate yourself as an individual to be an expression of what you would like the world to be an expression of. So it really started in those days out of a lot of a seeking that came from a culture that wasn't really working anymore. In some of your biographical material, you mentioned that Pittsburgh really wasn't the hotbed of this kind of progressive thinking. Would that be a fair characterization? So I became vegetarian when I was 14, and there wasn't a single vegetarian restaurant in Pittsburgh probably for a few decades following that. Pittsburgh's changed a tremendous amount. Obviously, it's a beautiful city. It's filled with culture and innovative thinking and uh, really cutting-edge technology. In the 70s, it was really an immigrant town, which I loved about it. 
every immigrant group had their own neighborhood. We had cultural festival once a year that went on for three days where there were dance performances and local foods. And that was its nature. It was a steel town. It was an immigrant town and it was beautiful. But I was really looking more for that East meets West movement. I was looking for people who were seeking. And there wasn't a lot of that going on in Pittsburgh at the time. But it led you to seek that out. You didn't kind of go a normal route and say, well, I'm moving on with my life. You you really chose to seek that out. And that led you to take a very unique trip. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came to the decision that you were going to embark on the adventure that we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. I finished high school in three years because I really felt it wasn't a good place for me. And my fourth year, I went to Israel for a year. I had a strong connection and, and really felt a lot of love for the land and the people. And it was a good time. There was peace. It was the year of the Camp David Peace Accords. So that that was the first time the borders were open between Israel and Egypt. And I spent a powerful year there doing volunteer work, came back, went to college. And in college, I was really a seeker. So I got out of all my requirements and took courses with the people I thought were the smartest and the most thoughtful. So I did some really interesting things related to educational theory, political science, regional development. And what I was studying was how to build the structures of culture that foster our higher human potential. It was the early 80s and Ithaca, New York was the hotbed of this next wave of more radical feminism. So I got involved in that. And part of the ethos was anything men could do, women could do absolutely equally. So we didn't really understand a lot about the difference between equity and equality. So I ended up going to Sydney, Montana, and was the first woman to work on a land-based oil rig in uh, Sydney, Montana. <laughs> I was a teenage roughneck when I was 19. Let's just say that at 120 pounds, I was not really well-equipped to do the job of a 280-pound, <laughs> very strong man. That didn't last very long, but it was part of my sense that I needed to experience. I went back to college, and then I ended up deciding to take a semester abroad, and I was on my way to Japan. I was supposed to be studying women's development in rural Japan, but secretly I wanted to study Japanese and go live in a Zen temple. The only problem was the, Zen, the Jap Japan I wanted to go to was the Japan of the samurai era. It was not the Japan of 1983. So I went to Asia, I got to Thailand, some travelers told me about this country called Burma, and being a good American, I had no idea where Burma was. I went to Burma. It was this beautiful Buddhist country. Then I just kept going, just kept following my instincts. And I ended up in Nepal and did my first 10-day retreat there. And that was the beginning of four years uh, where I spent the bulk of it studying with different teachers in Asia and spending time in the high mountains. Let's talk about that period a little bit. I mentioned in the introductory notes that you had a journey that you took at that time. The book sounds absolutely, uh, absolutely like a compelling read. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that journey and what did it do for you? How did you grow from taking that journey? I had my 21st birthday in Nepal. I was young. And when you're young, there, there are good things about it. And of course, there's some less good things about it. But the great thing about it was you don't really see limitation. You're not really constrained by danger. <laughs> so I 
really felt like I wanted to uh, spend time as much as possible in small villages and also work with different teachers. I lived in Dharamsala, which is the Dalai, the town of the Dalai Lama's residence and the center for Tibetans in exile. I lived there for about a year. And at one point I decided I was wanted to do some trekking in the mountains, but it was really a spiritual journey. Zanskar is a very little known corner Politically, it's situated in India. Geographically, it's part of the Tibetan Plateau. That had been closed to travelers until 1976. Because if you look at it on the map, it's part of a state called Jammu Kashmir, which is often is filled with conflict between the Hindus and the Muslims. Reaching over the top of Zanskar is a corner of Pakistan, which even though it's very remote, has had a lot of conflict. Above that is Afghanistan and Tajikistan. And then on the other side is Chinese-controlled Tibet. So the place had been sealed off for decades. And before that, it had been sealed off because of its geography. The culture at that point hadn't changed that much in hundreds of years. So I decided to go on a couple month walk just on my own with a backpack and there were no roads. And you basically walk, you go up a mountain ridge and down a mountain ridge and up a mountain ridge and down a mountain ridge. And I met beautiful, beautiful people along the way. And what I found there was uh, at that time, and I say at that time because in the 30 years since, they built a road, they brought in a money economy, and a lot of the culture has really been destroyed. We think of extinction in terms of species, but we really also need to think of extinction in terms of culture and way of life. I partly wrote Adventure in Zanskar because I wanted people to be able to experience the culture as I found it. and what was striking was their pragmatism and their equanimity. They lived a subsistence life. It's very remote. Not much grows. The winters are long and harsh. And they're really happy. And part of their happiness is the fact that they take care of each other, first and foremost. They put aside grievances because we all have to live together. And I've never been anywhere like it. And you mentioned it was... Uh- about 500 kilometers, give or take. Yeah. I don't know. It was somewhere between 250, 300 miles. So you really challenged yourself in a way that 21-year-old usually does not. It wasn't one of those macho events where I was trying to be the first woman or climb the tallest peak. or I wasn't really trying to prove something externally. I was really trying to discover something internally. And that was the place that drew me. And part of the challenge of doing things like that is you have to walk through your own mind and you start to realize that how you feel, whether you're having an ecstatic day or you're having a really crummy day, has more to do with your relationship to your thoughts than objectively what happens. So climbing up the face of you know, very steep path to go over a mountain pass that's 16,000 feet could be really joyous, or it could be real suffering. And objectively, nothing really changes in the terrain. It's just your mind that changes. What made you decide that now was the time to write this book? I had carried the journals that I kept 
in the mountains with me. And I had lived in, I don't know, half a dozen different countries and East Coast, West Coast, and back again. And somehow they always made it with me. I always felt that there was going to be a point where I needed to write this story. And I think that during the pandemic, I felt that it was important to share this story so that people could find that sense of adventure in themselves. You know, I think it's a great story. It's a good read. It's my story. I'm happy to tell it. But more than that, I really want people to, to reconnect with their own sense of adventure and curiosity and possibility and the, the desire to do something extraordinary. And it doesn't have to look like an adventure in the Himalayas, but something extraordinary can be daring to be a good person amidst a lot of acrimony and conflict. Daring to believe in yourself when everyone tells you that you're not good enough or that your skin color is wrong or that your zip code is wrong. So that's, that was, it was really to ignite that spirit of adventure. And eventually your path led you to uh, form the Inner Strength Foundation. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, what the objectives are of the foundation, and also talk about some of the work that you've done with the uh, youth in Philadelphia. Sure. So I spent over 30 years really spending time uh, immersed in different meditation techniques and practices, teaching, studying, writing uh, for a magazine about these issues, uh, reading a lot of philosophy and contemporary culture and trying to figure out how the world evolves. And I ended, my husband and I ended up coming to Philadelphia in 2013. And at that point, I had come to completion of what I'd been working on and I was ready to do something else. And I felt that I wanted to take the best of what I had had the great fortune to learn and translate it to the, to a population that doesn't have access. I don't love marketing. Now, the good thing about working with high school students is they have to be in school. So if I can work with the school district and create the opportunities, then I can expose a lot of students to these potentially uh, supportive methodologies. So I wrote a curriculum that used evolutionary neuroscience, which looks at 300 million years of brain development, that looks at the nature of cultural shifts between an earlier time period in modernity where we had greater social support, but fewer options for individual expression. We look at compassion building, what makes a good friend, what about self-compassion, and uh, seven different mindfulness techniques. Since 2014, myself and my, the instructors that I've trained, we've worked with more than 16,000 youth with a three-month program. We've gotten great research results, and it's, it's really proven to be something that's been what I, was, what I hoped. What is it that you want the students to walk away with from this experience? And how would you like that to impact what they do moving beyond the classroom experience that they had with you? I'll give you an example. One of my early classes, I think it was like the second year, I had a young man who was uh, Latinx origin. He was the first in his family to aspire to go to college. And he was very quiet and had very, very low self-esteem. Through these 12 weeks, he started to learn practices where he could be kind to himself, be encouraging to himself, and really access 
that sense of stability and centeredness that meant he didn't have to pay attention to the negative things his mind was telling him. So he was in an accelerated program called the International Baccalaureate Program, a lot of your listeners may know of. And one of the things they have to do is they have to do oral exams. So he was walking into his oral exam on Shakespeare as a senior, as the first in his generation trying to go to college. And he told me he was standing outside the door and he was shaking. I mean, he was like five, five eleven, six feet. I mean, he was a big guy and so sweet. And he said, I was standing outside the door and I was shaking so much. I wanted to run away. I didn't think I was going to walk in. I didn't think I could do it. He said, I remembered some of the things we did. And I started doing those exercises while I was waiting for the other student to finish. I walked in and I don't know what happened, but I was completely relaxed. And I felt more myself than I'd ever felt. And I just spoke what I thought. And I think it went okay. And he was so excited. I walked in and I saw the teacher and she, not knowing that he had spoken to me, he said, she said, I have to tell you that when uh, this young man came for his, or his exams, I've never heard anyone speak with such authenticity, complexity, and originality in 25 years teaching. It must be so meaningful to you and gratifying to hear that kind of thing and to see that your work is really having an impact on, on these individuals. Yeah. I saw him a few years later. He was junior in high in college. He was doing great. He, he was so filled with a, a gentleness and a confidence that comes, you know, not from willpower, but from his own sense of his ability to achieve. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. I really want to give people tools so that they can mitigate the effects of trauma because many of the students I work with have experienced multiple early childhood traumatic experiences from witnessing gun violence to substance abuse to mental illness. I mean, a lot of these children are carrying heavy burdens. So they're not going to vanish, but they, they have some tools so they can work with themselves. They don't have to depend on an expensive outside therapist. So they have tools for that and they have tools to understand worldviews because you start to see that how we interpret our experience depends on our worldview. What I find so compelling and wonderful about your story is that you basically uh, took your personal journey and not only did you use it to enhance your own spiritual fulfillment and your own person. But you also found a way to share that with others and help others grow. And I think that's a, a tremendous accomplishment. We want to make our lives matter. And whether that's our fulfillment within our own circles, with our families, you, know, we, you can't really measure goodness and purpose on a linear scale. Goodness and purpose really have to do with a kind of fulfillment of our capacity to love and care and you know, walk gently on this earth. That can look differently for a lot of different people. This is, this is my path. It happened to take me this way. If you had to sum up the message of all this for somebody who's listening, wh what would you tell them? That it's worth it to go deep. It's really worth it. There's a lot of richness to life uh, that isn't dependent on making the world work because right now <laughs> we're in so much conflict. But really try, really spending time contemplating what's most important and considering those unanswerable questions uh, really brings a lot of joy. And at this 
point, our world needs a lot of joy and a lot of people who have a little bit more lightness to their being. That's what we need. Those are great words, I think, to end our conversation on. I want to really thank you for spending some time with me. It's been a wonderful conversation. Great. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.